Bibles now to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, the fifth chapter of 1 Thessalonians, and this continues somewhat the flow of what we were seeing in the end of chapter 4. If you recall last week, if you were here, or if you've read 1 Thessalonians 4 before, Paul was dealing with them about some concerns that they had about the people who had died. Because they were looking forward to the Lord coming back for them, as Jesus had promised and has, as Paul had no doubt taught them about. And now some people, Jesus hadn't come and some people were dying and so they were concerned. So in chapter 4, Paul talked to them about the fact that, hey, the day is coming when Jesus will come and snatch away, the word is harpazo in the Greek, catch up those who have lived long enough to get there to his return. And Paul thought that he would be among those because he says, we who are alive and remain will be caught up. And so we talked a little bit about the idea of a rapture. We looked over at 1 Corinthians 15 to compare passages. And Paul said, ultimately, this is something that you should comfort each other with, knowing that any day now, this event could happen. It was something that everyone in the early church was anticipating, and they were a bit concerned that it hadn't happened yet. And, um, of course, we talked about Second Peter 3, where Peter said, God isn't slack concerning his promises. Some men count slackness, but he's patient for, toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. And so God's waiting for people to get saved, but his promise is certain, and as we saw the imminent return of Christ was on the horizon somewhere, and the next event that you're expecting is to be caught up in the air with the Lord, along with everyone who has died in Christ. And so now Paul in chapter 5 shifts gears a bit. It's a continuation of the same discussion, though, of future things or eschatology, but now he addresses himself more to the day of the Lord and to the practical ramifications of that. Now, this section ends in verse 11, where again he says, therefore comfort each other and edify one another, just as you are also doing. So it's a further source of comfort to understand what he is about to say. All right, now, and, and again, when we're looking at a passage like this, I think a lot of people would expect me to stop and spend a week just talking about everything that the Bible has to say about prophecy, everything that the Bible has to say about the rapture and the tribulation and all that kind of thing. But number one, that's not a practical thing to do, I don't think. But number two, uh, these are controversial issues with a lot of people. And so there's division and there are differences of understanding. Well, what does that have to do with it? Well. To me, the best way to handle those kinds of things is not to collect all the data and create one big hodgepodge, but rather to read the text that we have before us with the understanding that they would have had. Because see, if I start taking Revelation and trying to interpret 1 Thessalonians with it, that has certain validity because they won't contradict each other. But what I want to look at is what did this say to the Thessalonians? Because this was written 45 or 50 years before Revelation was even written. So when they read it, they weren't going, oh, this must be like Revelation chapter 4. They would probably connect it back 
to Daniel and Ezekiel and Zephaniah and Hosea and different prophets. But the, and they would what they have that we don't have is what had Paul told them already. And he refers somewhat to what he told them. But that's why mostly I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to confine my comments, and I think we should confine our understanding to what they would have had as background and what it is that he was telling them right here. And I think that that points in a particular direction, and I will share with you why I have the convictions that I have, but I will certainly allow that you can read this and come up with a different conclusion, and if you do, that's fine with me. But let's just look at what he says. First of all, he says, but concerning the times and the seasons, brethren. Now, times and seasons, times is a good translation of the word there that's used chronos in the Greek, and we talk about chronological. It's times referring to sequential orders of events generally, but times is a good translation. But the word for seasons that's translated here is the word kairos in the Greek, which is also always translated times. And that probably refers more to times as in, you know, things that are happening as a, in a period of time. But a more accurate translation would be, but concerning the times and times, but realize they're two different words, brethren. So concerning what's going to happen, what's going to be happening around that, and what happens before or after other things, you have no need that I should write to you. Not necessarily because he had told them all this stuff, but because he had already told them, hey, you're not going to know. This isn't for you to know. It's not important for you to know. For you yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord so comes as a thief in the night. The day of the Lord, whatever that is, is going to come like somebody breaking into your house when you least expect it. Now, the idea here is the day of the Lord is imminent. We already said from chapter 4, it would certainly appear that the rapture of the church is imminent, can come at any time. But now here he is saying the day of the Lord is imminent. So is the day of the Lord the rapture? Well, in their mind, they certainly wouldn't thought of, woohoo, the day of the Lord. You know, we might, if we thought just, okay, what do we think about day of the Lord? We would think, wow, the Lord's day, it's when God does. Well, in the Old Testament, there are a lot of references to the day of the Lord, all looking forward prophetically, but not positively. So we need to understand what this term day of the Lord means in order to really understand what the passage is. And to do that, I'd like you to turn to just a couple of passages. First of all, Zephaniah chapter 1. And by the time you find it, the message will be over. <laughs> now, it's at the end of the Old Testament. You come to Zechariah, go a little to your left. There's Haggai, and then there's Zephaniah. And in my Bible, it's page number 826. Zephaniah chapter 1, the whole book of Zephaniah devotes itself to the day of the Lord. But in verse 1, it says, the word of the Lord came to Zephaniah, and then it identifies him, and then come to verse 2, Zephaniah chapter 1. Here's what God says, I will utterly consume everything from the face of the land. 
says the Lord. I will consume man and beast. I will consume the birds of the heavens, the fish of the sea, the stumbling blocks along with the wicked. I will cut off man from the face of the land, says the Lord. I will stretch out my hand against Judah and against all the inhabitants of Jerusalem. I will cut off every trace of Baal from this place, the names of the idolatrous priests with the pagan priests, those who worship the host of heaven on the housetops, those who worship and swear oaths by the Lord, Jehovah, by who also, but who also who swear by Milcom, which was the Ammonite word for Molech, those who have turned back from following the Lord and have not sought the Lord nor inquired of him, be silent in the presence of the Lord God, for the day of the Lord is at hand. For the Lord has prepared a sacrifice, he has invited his guests, and it shall be in the day of the Lord's sacrifice that I will punish the princes and the king's children and all such as are clothed with foreign apparel. And I'm going to punish those who leap over the threshold. Those were people who worshiped the god Dagon and were, were superstitious in that way. Talks about all the merchants being cut down, and he just continues in the rest of the book goes that way. Now, while we're back in the Old Testament, go back a little further to Amos, the book of Amos. It's a little bit before Jonah. You have Jonah, Obadiah, and then Amos. And let's go to chapter 5 of Amos. And again, this is a prophecy concerning the day of the Lord. Amos chapter 5, and we'll skip over to verse um, 16. Amos five sixteen. Therefore, the Lord God of hosts, the Lord, says this, There shall be wailing in all streets, and they shall say in all the highways, Alas, alas, they shall call the farmer to mourning, and skillful lamenters to waiting. In all vineyards there shall be wailing, For I will pass through you, says the Lord. Woe to you who desire the day of the Lord. For what good is the day of the Lord to you? It will be darkness and not light. It will be as though a man fled from a lion and a bear met him, or as though he went into the house and leaned his hand on the wall and a serpent bit him. Is not the day of the Lord darkness and not light? It is not very dark with no brightness in it. Now, this is probably the passage that Paul was thinking about here in 1 Thessalonians 5, because as he now continues to talk about the day of the Lord, he uses this imagery of light and darkness, day and night. And so when he said day of the Lord, boom, instantly they are thinking, "Uh uh-oh, day of the Lord? Day of the Lord is something that he said, hey, nobody should look forward to this. Nobody wants this. This is a day of absolute devastation. This is a day when the light is gone and darkness rules. The only way for it to be dark, by the way, is for there not to be light. A little bit of light on the scene eliminates darkness. Darkness isn't a substance. Darkness is the lack of a substance. Okay. So now, back in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, he says, The day of the Lord comes as a thief in the night. For when they say peace and safety, then sudden destruction comes upon them as labor pains upon a pregnant woman, and they shall not escape. 
So he goes, sounds a lot like Amos, and he goes on and develops it more. But he says this day of judgment is going to hit like a thief waking you up in the middle of the night, robbing your house. And total devastation is going to be the result. It's just going to be horrible. It's going to be awful, just like the prophets had prophesied. And, but look at how he refers to the people who are there who are devastated in the third person. He says, For when they say peace and safety, then sudden destruction comes upon them as labor pains upon a pregnant woman, and they shall not escape. Now that's contrasted within the next verse when he says, but you. But remember, it's the people who are going through this time that are referred to as they. Now, again, there are a couple of possibilities. And there are good people who would believe, for instance, that Christians will go through this time of tribulation that Daniel talks about. Now, and Ezekiel and other prophets, and obviously the ones we've read in Zephaniah and Amos. Um, so let's just say for a moment that Christians are going to be there. So what's the them and us thing? What would be they? Would it be true then that for a Christian, this day wouldn't come like a thief in the night? Well, no, of course not. It would come as a thief in the night to anybody. Would it be true that Christians weren't devastated, that they weren't destroyed? That they, Well, no. I mean, everybody here is going to get bowled over. Large, vast numbers of people who are going to die. So this them and us thing is kind of important because you want to be a part of the us. And so just reading it, remember Paul in talking eschatology in the previous chapter, in chapter 4, was very clear that he expected to be here during the end of times, during the rapture, at the time when Jesus would return as he had promised in John 14, Acts chapter 1, and other places. So he, he is saying, for instance, in chapter 4, where he says, we who are alive and remain will be caught up. But he's not saying we are going to experience this devastation. He says, they, all of a sudden it shifts to the third person. But let's continue. In verse 4, he says, But you, brethren, are not in darkness, so that this day should overtake you as a thief. You are all sons of light and sons of the day. We are not of the night nor of darkness. So he says, we've got a contrast here. There's day, and following day is night. There are people who are children of light, and there are people who are children of darkness. And he said, you are not of the darkness, you are of the light. And again, the way that darkness overcomes everyone is by light being extinguished, or light being out, light being gone. So he's saying, this isn't something for you, this is something for them. Can we agree on that at this point? Okay, now we continue. He says, Therefore, let us not sleep as others do, but let us watch, be alert, and be sober, be self-controlled. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk are drunk at night, until they get really pathetic and just drink all day. But let us, who are of the day, 
Be sober, self-controlled, putting on the breastplate of faith and love, and as a helmet, the hope of salvation. Faith, hope, and love. We'll come back to that. Verse 9, For God did not appoint us to wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. So he says, God didn't appoint us to wrath, but we who are alive and remain are going to be caught up. So if this is a time of God's wrath, the day of the Lord, it would seem that he's saying that's not for us. Now, no one is really spared. There are 144 Jews, 12,000 from each tribe of Israel, who will be supernaturally protected. But unless you make that symbolic of the church somehow, basically everyone on the earth, the, in, in the book of Revelation, you see tons, countless of martyrs who are killed, slaughtered during the tribulation period. So people who are in the tribulation are certainly not immune to devastation. They'll be treated horribly. They'll be blamed for everything that's going on. But he says, you aren't destined to wrath. You, that's not meant for you. You're not a part of that. And then he goes on to say, so, so comfort each other. Now, it could be, and there are people who read this passage honestly and come to the conclusion, okay, at first he goes through and he talks about the rapture. Then in chapter 5, he kind of backs up and expands it, and he talks about what will lead to the rapture and this tribulation period, and you'll be saved from it by going to heaven after your head's cut off during the tribulation. Comfort each other. Okay, yeah, I mean, that's a legitimate position. There are good people who hold to that position. There are brothers and sisters in Christ, certainly, and I would never tell any of you you shouldn't hold to that position. It's just that as I'm reading it, it seems like when you're emphasizing comfort and you're saying, this is going to happen to them, but there's something better for you because you're going to be saved. Now, by the way, that word for salvation there isn't the normal word for saved, which is sozo in the Greek. This is the word soteria, from which in theology, the study of salvation is called soteriology. But it's a word that explicitly means to be rescued. And so if he says, you're not destined to wrath because you are going to be rescued, and again, you back up and get the context, and if, in fact, I'm correct that the rapture is the rescue program, then it flows pretty easily. But you can interpret it differently, and, and that's fine too. But he says, God didn't appoint us to wrath. This is clearly a time of God's wrath. But God appointed us to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us. I love that. Now, we take that for granted. Oh, Jesus died for us. We call it the substitutionary atonement. Jesus Christ taking our place. Jesus Christ taking our sins and going to the cross for us. It's the essence of the gospel. Christ died for us. But it's interesting that it's found here because, believe it or not, this isn't something, although no doubt, Paul had been teaching this, although no doubt apostles had come to understand this. We know it because it's said several times in Scripture. Romans 5.8, 1 
But God committeth his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. In 1 Corinthians 15, you know, that, you know, this has been declared to us. Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, was buried, rose again the third day according to the scriptures, and was seen by witnesses. So we're like, yeah, Christ died for our sins, no problem. But here's the thing. This book was written around 50, or early 50s, certainly, A.D., seven or eight years before 1 Corinthians and Romans. So this is, this is huge. This is a major revelation, and it's the essence of Christianity that Jesus died for us. So don't miss that as being an aha moment, a real epiphany, if you will. Um, Jesus died for us. That means for you, for me. In order that whether we wake or sleep, we should live together with him. Wake or sleep. Now, at first you'd think it's easy to interpret what wake or sleep is because just in the previous chapter, he referred to those who die before the rapture as being those who are asleep in Christ. So you think, obviously, sleep is a metaphor for death. And, you know, you could support this by it being used other places. As I mentioned last week, when Jairus' daughter died, Jesus said, ah, she's asleep. And they go, well, let's wake her up. He goes, no, I'm talking about she's dead. Um, sleep being dead. So now it would seem to be, he's saying, look, whether you make it to the rapture or whether you die first, it's cool. You know, we've all been saved and we're going to live together with him. And that works fine and that might be what he's referring to, but I just want to throw a little monkey wrench into the works because he uses a different Greek word for sleep here as he does in verse 4. It's highly unusual that someone would switch to a different word in the same immediate context, and if it happens, it's because there's a reason for it in general. The word that's used for sleep in chapter 4, referring to death, is the same word that was used referring to Jairus' daughter sleeping. And that's a word that's used often as a metaphor for death. But this word is never used as a metaphor for death anywhere that we know of, anywhere in Scripture or out of Scripture. So it's a bit unusual. Now, if it's not referring to, hey, whether we make it till the rapture, whether we die first and rise with him, what it could mean, and to me, I kind of lean towards this. Commentators are somewhat split. But what, it, what he would be saying in that case, in this immediate context, he's talking about the fact that we need to be awake. Okay, in other words, we need to be alert. We need to be self-controlled. We need to be living as God has told us to live in light of what's coming in the future. However... It's obviously possible, as you see from the context, for people to be a child of God and yet to doze off and be asleep. And, and so he's exhorting all of God's children to be awake and alert and self-controlled. So it could be, and I'm thinking I kind of lean toward the idea that what he's saying here is, look, whether you want to wake up or whether you want to doze off, Jesus died for us, and that's why we're saved. See, I could never accept the idea that there's some kind of partial rapture. That, you know, people are really on fire for the Lord, get raptured, but people are dozing off, or all the preterists and post-trib and all mills, and, you know, they don't get raptured. It's just those of us that see it. That, no, 
See, here's the thing. No matter what you're doing, no matter what your life is, if you're a child of God and your sins have been forgiven, then it's on the basis of Christ dying for you that he can take you to heaven. And there is no other basis. It's not like, well, you know, I'm not that good, but man, I hear Pastor Dave saying some things that he does, and, I'm, and I know I don't drive as fast as he does, and so I'm thinking I'm okay for the rapture. Now, sorry, every one of us only gets into heaven because Jesus died for us. Either you've put your faith in that or you haven't. And so that's the way I'm reading it at this point, but I'm open to, to either interpretation or if you can dream up another one. But I think he's saying, look, the thing is, if you want to stay sleeping, still. It's the, it's the death of Jesus on your behalf that opens the door for you to be rescued. And then he says, we're going to live together with him. Therefore, comfort, the word is parakaleo, come alongside, encourage, come on, man, be with each other with these facts and edify or build up one another just as you also are doing. So that's kind of laid out. Now, again, one more thing that's sort of telling to me, and there are a lot of things, but one of the reasons why I lean toward this being a pre-tribulation rapture, in fact, I lead very, lean very strongly in that direction, although I acknowledge other positions are totally legitimate scripturally, um, it's just from, if you only had this passage, there wouldn't be a lot of people who are not pre-trib. But see, here's the thing. Is the rapture, did they believe that the rapture was imminent, that it could come at any time? When Paul said to Titus, looking for that blessed hope, were they really looking for the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ? Did they believe that he could come for them at any time? And I'd propose to you, certainly as we saw last week, yeah, that, that's what they were under the impression. They were concerned about that, in fact. They were so persuaded of that fact. Now, you can argue whether they were right or wrong, but that was their expectation. Now, after talking about that in chapter 4, in chapter 5, he says, the day of the Lord is going to come as a great shock because there are going to be people who are thinking peace and safety. By the way, it can't be us because we should be thinking peace and safety. We are. Jesus came to give us peace. But there are people who think they're fine, and they're expecting that, and boom, labor pains hit. Devastation and destruction come upon them. And so I would propose to you that the day of the Lord is imminent. It could come at any time. Clearly says that. Thief in a night. So if the day of the Lord is imminent, and if the return of Christ is imminent... Um, and I believe that both are well supported in scriptures, how in the world could that be? There are two possible explanations. It could be that if the, well, the, the most logical explanation is that they come at the same time. So if the rapture comes and the day of the Lord comes, immediately, boom, boom, then it was all imminent. You're like, hey, where'd those people go? Whoa, where did this come from? Now, Otherwise, if you want to believe that the rapture comes later, you would go, people are surprised when the time of tribulation hits and devastated by that, but then, but seven years later, they forget all about the scriptures, and then, boom, another surprise. The believers are caught up to be with the Lord. So 
that's possible. I think my way is much more likely. Now, having said that, what's the point? Why was Paul, why did he start out by going, you don't need to know about the Kronos and the Kairos. You don't need, like, what they would have loved is what we would have loved. And I wish anything that God would have done this. Give us a timeline for crying out loud. Why do we need to spend all this time arguing and cross-texting and reading between the lines? Like, if God had just said, okay, Paul, here, tell him this. Here's the timeline. Big old church age for a long indeterminate time, and then a dispensation shift, snatching up of the believers, seven years of judgment on Israel and ultimately against the world, then a thousand-year reign of Christ, then Satan's really shortly, then, boom, the eternal state, new heavens, new earth, everything else, Satan's cast forever into the lake of fire after being released one more time. There you have it. Now, it'd be great if he did that, but he didn't. And that's why good people can disagree on these things. Because that wasn't his point. Paul did not write 1 Thessalonians and 2 Thessalonians in order to tell you about what's going to happen in the future. That was not his intent. He wasn't writing a textbook on eschatology. And I never would either. Here's, what, here's his point. Let's go back to the text where he says, verse 5, You're sons of light and sons of day. We're not of the night nor of the darkness. Therefore, let us not sleep as others do, but let us watch, let's be alert, and let's be sober, let's, be, let's utilize self-control. Because if you sleep, you sleep at night. If you drink, generally you drink at night. But let us, who are of the day be sober, be self-controlled, putting on the breastplate of faith and love, and as a helmet, the hope of salvation. That is the point of the passage. And what Paul is clearly saying here is, okay, I'm throwing you a few bones, I'm telling you this is going to happen, but you don't need to sort all that out. What you need to do is live like somebody who is from the light. What you need to do is have a life that looks like daytime. And so he said, your, your deal is, and your conclusion from the eschatology should be, I need to wake up. It's time for me to pay attention. I need to get control of my life, allow the Spirit to take control and cause me to sober up. It doesn't just mean don't ever laugh, but it's like, no, I am fully in control of my faculties. I'm not loaded. And then he says, and have faith and love and hope. Faith, hope, and love. The three Christian virtues. Faith means that you are living according to what you believe. Faith means that you are dependable. Faith means that you believe what God says and you line your life up in line with it that you are a faithful Christian. Love is the way that we express our concern for each other. Love is the way that we can express our concern for others who don't know him. Love is the stamp that shows, here's what a Christian life looks like. And then hope of salvation, that hope is anticipating and looking forward to 
knowing that you can count on God taking care of things, on him resolving everything, on him rescuing us ultimately, and us being together with him. Now, two of those involve primarily what goes on now. The third one involves what happens in the future. And for a lot of people, when they study passages like this, they're all consumed with what happens in the future. But what Paul is saying is, there's something that you need to do now in light of the future. So here's the thing. However you want to interpret events of eschatology, what matters is are you living a life of faith, consistency? Are you living a life of love? Are you walking in love? Are you, do you have a hope? Are you trusting in him and knowing that you don't need to panic because, hey, you know he's going to take care of things in the end. Is that your life? Now, that's important for two reasons, essentially. One of them is internal. How do I know that I'm a child of the light? I can argue all I want about who's going to get rescued. How do I know I'm going to get rescued? And the only way the Bible lets me know that is what happens in my life. And if I see a growing faithfulness in my life, a concern for the things of God, a consistency, I'm growing in self-control, then, hey, it causes me to feel like, wow, God's working in my life. Same thing for love. Now, none of us are going to be perfect in any of these areas, but do I care about my brothers and sisters? And do I care about people who don't know Jesus? And then with hope, am I optimistic or am I pessimistic? Am I excited about whatever God has in my future because I know it ultimately leads to salvation? Or am I doom and gloom and thinking things are going to get worse? And I See, these things are fruits of the Spirit. These are things, elements that should be a part of the life of the believer. So when you see faith, hope, and love in your life, even, as it, even if it's minuscule, but you're seeing it grow, you know that the Spirit is working in your life. And so that gives you a sense of, oh, I can comfort myself in this because I see God working in my life. Now, the second reason why these virtues are so important, why these values are so important, is this is how people who are lost get found. This is how every one of us entered into a relationship with God ultimately, was when we witnessed faith, hope, and love in action. And see, there are children of light and there are children of darkness. But what is the heart of our Father? It's to bring people out of darkness into the light, right? He, as Peter said in 2 Peter, Peter was talking about the day of the Lord being like elements will melt with a fervent heat and all that stuff. But right before that, he said, hey, God isn't slack concerning his promises. Some people count slackness, but he's patient toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. So the heart of God is that everyone in the dark would see the light. How are they going to see the light? I mean, it'd be difficult if the light's not here, which would seem to be the case when the day of the Lord hits. But before then, we are the light of the world, Jesus said. So how important should it be Given the fact that in the future there's a time of darkness, this is our time to shine. This is our opportunity to deliver people from darkness into light. 
that door, that window of opportunity is going to close someday when God shuts the light off and the light is taken out and now everybody's in the darkness and by then it's going to be really tough to see whatever little flickers of light are there. And so for us, our understanding of future things, however we understand them, should cause us to recognize the point. And again, Paul's not completely clear about the scheme of things, about the times and times, but he's very clear about this. Therefore, be awake, be controlled, be faithful, be loving, and have a hope of salvation. Now, today, you might be a person who is what we call a preterist. You look at all the prophecies and you go, all this stuff, Amos and Zephaniah and Ezekiel and Daniel and Matthew 24 and this, it was all fulfilled in 70 AD or it was all fulfilled in the Babylonian captivity or during the time of of Antiochus Epiphanes or during 70 AD when Titus came in. So you can be a preterist and you can go, all this stuff has already passed. I don't care if you're a preterist. That doesn't bother me at all. As long as your preterism leads you to realize what matters is faith, love, and hope. Now, you may be an amillennialist and you may be someone who thinks, I don't think there really is a literal thousand-year reign of Christ. I don't think there's really a tribulation. I just think that we're going to bring the kingdom in, and, or as a post-millennialist would say, and Jesus comes back and everything's cool. I don't care if you believe that. But if you believe that, is it leading you to faith, hope, and love? Now, you can also say, I'm with you on the premillennialism, but I think the rapture happens in the middle of the tribulation. I don't care as long as it leads you to faith, hope, and love. Or you can be a post-tribulationist and you can go, I don't know, I read this and I'm kind of thinking they happen at the same time because they happen at the... Faith, hope, and love. That's the point. So you can be wrong and that's fine if you're right when it comes to faith, hope, and love. And so... I'm not obsessed with being correct about this. I, I've tried to give my best shot at an honest portrayal of it, and so it's no secret that I'm convic- convinced that uh, there's a rapture that happens in chapter 4 before the tribulation comes in chapter 5. But if you don't believe in that, don't miss the therefore. Make sure that your life is depicting and interpreting from the events that are going to take place or that have taken place or that will at a specific time or another time, make sure that you have something to look forward to and make sure that your life is alert, awake, faithful, loving, and hopeful. And sad to say, in perhaps no other area of theology, well, ironically, there's one other area where this is the case, but in eschatology, People are sometimes the most angry and hateful and divisive as possible. And that's just ridiculous. The other area has to do with spiritual gifts. People will take 1 Corinthians 12 through 14 and they argue about 
well, what's the baptism of the Holy Spirit and what's the gift of tongues and our gifts for today and all that kind of stuff. And they never notice that chapter 13 is right in the middle of that that says if you don't have love, the rest of the stuff doesn't even matter. You guys, that's the meaning of Christianity. Christ died for us to take care of our future. And of that, everyone who believes in the death and resurrection of Christ believes that. And also, there are hints, there are teachings. I'm not saying these things aren't important and we should look at them and wrestle with them, but we should only look at them in light of how does this cause me to be more faithful, more loving, and more optimistic? Because if you have the right position but the wrong response, you miss the point. So that is the heart of the passage. And I, I, I haven't been up here trying to convince you that you ought to believe me, that you ought to believe the way I do. If you haven't figured out that out by now, you never will. But what I'm trying to say is, I don't care what conclusion you come to, we can all say amen to this. It's about faith and love and hope. That should be the conclusion of our eschatology. And, and that's the heart of the matter. And that's what we should be able to walk away from, embrace each other, and go, you know what, if your position is wrong, but it causes you to be faithful and loving and hopeful, then there's not going to be a whole ton of damage that's done. So you have to take your view and see, what does it have to do with faith, love, and hope? Um, I feel comfortable that my view spurs me on to that, ultimately to get the word out that there is hope, that there is someone who died for you and loves you. And there's a love that comes as a result of that. And that's what matters. And that should be the bottom line of all eschatology. We can have fun exploring these things, but there's a reason why all these things aren't drawn to a nice, neat little package in the scriptures. Because as Paul said, when it comes to the chronology, when it comes to the times, you don't need to know that. Jesus said, I don't even know at that time, he said. But we know this, faith, hope, and love. As Paul said in 1 Corinthians 13, but now abide faith, hope, and love, these three, and the greatest of these is love. Don't ever lose love over eschatology or over anything else because ultimately love is that which will remain forever. That's what will define us. That's what makes us children of God. Let's pray. Lord, thanks for your word. It's always interesting to look into it and to try to project what it all means. And Lord, I, I trust that by your spirit, you'll help us to make some sense out of everything here. We know that every word of scripture is there for a reason. And it's to help us in doctrine and correction, instruction in righteousness, that we would be fully equipped. And so Lord, take this passage and help us to take from it what we need to, and to understand it as best as we can. But Lord, for those of us that just need to jump to the cliff notes, help us to live lives of faith and self-control and love and hope. Help us to make whatever doctrine we have look good, look like you, and lead others to want to know you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.